friend. Welcome back to Move the Needle, the podcast brought to you by myself, Jason Zook, and my good friend, Greg Hartle, where we talk to you about ways that we are moving the needle in our lives and businesses. Wow, what a fancy intro that was, huh? Wow, that sounded, the, that was the most professional you've done yet. We need to, yeah, we need like a, just a clean cut of that and we can just use that everywhere, you know, when we get like that. our big... Yeah, just loop it, like, you know, put it on SoundCloud, whatever the kids are doing these days. You yes, know? yes. Very professional. <laughs> uh, I, I'm excited for this episode. I, I teed this up to you before we started recording to talk about uh, debt and leveraging debt and when to think about debt and kind of the reason why this episode will be more topic focused than it will be kind of updates on our businesses and how the needle is moving. Because I think for both of us, with almost everything we're working on, there's not much needle movement happening either one way or another. And and I think this is just very normal when you work on things as you kind of get into how I like to refer to it as like the ugly middle. So you, you're starting to do things, but you haven't made enough progress to really have anything to show. So you kind of just have to wait and be patient to be able to have more things to talk about. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So the the thing about business is there shouldn't be a lot to talk about at a lot of times, right? right? So if you're just sitting around talking about your business all the time, that means you're probably not working <laughs> on your business yep. in the trenches. So so yeah, I think for me, I'll just give you a quick update uh, before we get into debt on uh, moving toward digital products because in our in our last podcast, I believe we were talking a lot about me trying to figure out my audience and and that sort of thing. So I've spent a lot of time researching basically. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to decide, you know, one of the things I've been trying to decide is, is my audience industry specific or job specific? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, a lot of courses that I want to design and that I have outlines for that are for small business office managers. I, I think that position doesn't get a lot of really good training. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that position, a lot of business, small businesses success hinges on that role. So Hmm. who's ever managing the day to day of the business is, uh, such a critical component in a small business, but they often, because it's a small business, they often come from varied backgrounds. They come from varied education, um, varied training, uh, and the role is dynamic and, uh, widespread, right? So the, the way, but, but the fundamental actions of your job often are very similar regardless of industry. Mm. So, so I, I'm trying to figure out if that's a focus and if that's narrow enough um, and uh, or do I need to make it specific to an industry. But, you know, I can go into so many different business, pick any retail business, for example, you know, in a five mile radius from my house, every office manager, which is most likely not the owner of the business in most cases um, in those retail businesses is doing the same tasks. Mm-hmm. They're managing money very similarly. They're managing, uh, schedule, uh, staff schedules very similarly. They're managing procedures and policies very similarly. They're managing meetings very similarly, right? They're managing, uh, marketing very similarly. Um, and there's ways to do it better. Uh, that they probably aren't aware of or haven't been trained on. Um, and so I'm trying to determine if I should focus uh, 
there. Same thing could be said for back office, right? So any business that is kind of an, a professional office that has back office work to be done, it's all very similar, whether it's a mortgage company, whether it's a doctor's office, whether it's a hair, you know, barber, whether it's whatever it is, the back office work that has to be done is very similar across the board. So anyway, that's where I'm at right now is trying to decide, do I want to go more toward where we talked about in the last podcast, which was more industry specific, mm -hmm. or do I want to go more role or job specific? Um, and I'm undecided at the moment. Yeah. Do you have some thing that you're going to do to help figure that out? Like, are you just, oh, I haven't done enough research for this or I'm trying to do that? Or is it more just the, the research, the research is my first step. Got it. So what I'm researching is, you know, what's out there for say office managers and, uh, you know, what's available to them and is it good? Is it, is, could I do it better? Um, is it, is it readily available? Is it cost effective? You know, so I'm kind of doing some research like that. And then I also did quite a bit of research last time. I, I took the broad category of home service professional mm -hmm. and I, and then I started to break down like, what are those home services and what's available to those individuals? So everything from, you know, pool cleaning to house cleaning to window washing, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are home service professionals, yep. you know, um, uh, and, and what I, what I've been also looking at is what comes in my mail, my physical mail, mm -hmm. right. And, and what's in the local newspaper, because that's where a lot of those businesses still spend a lot of their money. Right. And so I'm just kind of looking at those, the, the challenge that I'm finding with a lot of those are, most of those are run by the owner and or a spouse. And most of those are not looking to grow, mm -hmm. right? They, they are happy being a one, two person business and just exchanging hours, you know, labor for dollars. And the question is, is how can I identify from my marketing standpoint, if I were to build something for them, how could I identify the right service professional who's looking to, who's at the right place in their business and is looking to grow their business? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm kind of at the early stages of that, um, you know, doing that research to determine what's next. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what you come up with. I, my brain immediately goes to, I think, what we talked about on the last episode, which is to pick the industry and not to focus so much on like necessarily like the position or any of those things. Because I just think, and I said this last episode too, the personalization factor, like what problem people are looking to solve, um, at least from my own experience and research that I have, and, and you may find that this is just different when you do a bunch of research, is that, you know, it's a cleaning company who is essentially searching for, you know, how can we make our cleaning business more profitable or how can we, um, you know, grow our cleaning business to, you know, another city or whatever. Um, just that example to me seems like it makes the most sense to go industry specific, but 
I'm also not doing the research. So I'll actually be curious to see, you know, maybe in the next episode or two, as you get further down that path, what you find and what really stands out to you. Uh, and I know that just uh, bringing something back from very early on in the show, not that we're like, you know, years down the road, but you did mention really early on that you have a, a f- an interesting marketing idea for your course. I remember you said yeah. that you're like, I've, you know, I have something. So I'll be, once you kind of define what this looks like, what, you know, what you're going to do, what we call picking your product pony in Build Without Burnout, uh, which, you know, you're going through in the Wandering Aimfully membership, which is fun. Uh, I think that'll be, it'll be really fun to just kind of like see, you know, okay, now that you've found that person, how are you going to differentiate differentiate between the things that they're spending money on now or where they're looking for things and those types of uh, opportunities? Yeah, and and the the thing the thing that I'm stuck between is what I've personally seen through consulting with small businesses and the issues that I've run into in my own small businesses uh, that are universal and you know the specificity of a industry need and uh, you know I've seen so many small businesses that just just take like answering the phone as a simple example it, it, it doesn't matter what business it is there's a better way to answer the phone and handle mm-hmm. the customer call right and if you look at it but but I like the idea or, or or I understand the concept that you've explained um with the internet where the need is so specifically searchable mm-hmm. right so so I'm trying to decide, for instance, do I just build one simple course yep. for that very specific finite thing, or do I focus more on, you know, a handful of back office courses mm-hmm. for various back offices, as an example, yeah. right? So, so I do think starting smaller makes sense, though. You know, I'm leaning toward just one simple course for one specific thing you know, and making everything centralized around that. It's not as attractive to me mm. personally, though. Mm. That's that's where there's a little bit of a hang up where that doesn't seem that exciting to me. I can do it. Yeah. I can make money with it, I think. It's just not that exciting to me personally. So that's that's where there's a little bit of a rub. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll give it a week or two more and, and we'll see where I end up. Yeah. And I, I actually... That to me is such a good way of like your own litmus test of, and I do this with almost every idea that I have, whether it's like a course or like a big crazy or weird idea is I kind of make the idea sit. And sometimes that means doing some research and not moving forward with it and, you know, whatever. Sometimes it also just means trying to ignore the idea. And if it keeps coming back to me, that's actually when I know I've got something that I really do want to work on and that I'm really excited about. Because I've had plenty of ideas where, I think they're a great idea at the moment, but then a week later, I've completely forgotten about them. And that, you know, that to me means it's not worth my time to go further with that. I need to listen a little bit to that as we talked a lot about, I think, in the last episode, which is intuition and just going, okay, like what is really calling to me? Because if it's not calling to me, then I'm not going to put in all the time, all the effort that it's going to require to succeed. And I need to move on to the next thing, which is okay because I'll come up with more ideas as we, you know, yeah, and that, as a lot of us can. But, but right that's mindset. where I've, I've always gotten stuck where this, these ideas that I have have continuously 
entered into my mind of Greg, you got to do this. Like, you know, for, for literally like 10 years. Right. So, so more than that, maybe, um, even, so I know I want to do, I know I want to create the product, Mm -hmm. right. What, what I'm getting stuck on is all the other aspects around that product that have to be done to sell that product and make it work are where I have the hangups. Yeah. Where that's just not that interesting to me in particular industries specifically, but the product yeah. itself, I'm very interested in. I, I need to just create it, even if I don't sell it at this point, because I've been, yeah. I've been designing this. I've been outlining this, designing this, recording things, writing things, researching things for literally 10, 12 years. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I have hundreds of notes on how to answer the phone better, how to handle customer service, how to how to uh, uh, book more sales, how to do consultations, how to do like I just have hundreds and hundreds of my ideas and notes and research and folders and paperwork and files and you know and and it's just like at some point I either need to just delete all that shit and throw it away. <laughs> Or I need to do something with it. And I'd like yeah. to do something with it. Um, it's just a matter of, of of picking the angle to take. Yeah. And that, that to me is also a little bit of something that like we just all deal with, which is the analysis paralysis, where I don't even think it's for you going, oh, I just don't know what to do. It's like, you know, I don't know what I'm excited about. I don't know what I really want to, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't want to waste this time, which I think is actually really interesting, you know, segue as we start to talk about debt and leveraging debt, because time debt is a real thing. You know, sunk cost bias is a real thing. None of us want to spend months on something to have it not work out and then go, well, I could have spent all that time on something else that I also wanted to work on. And where would I be? And and then you have these thoughts. And then what that drags a lot of people down into is never doing the next thing. Because now all they think is, oh, well, what just happened is only going to be the thing that happens to me over and over. And it's not a fair comparison. You know, there's just, there's so many different circumstances. There's so many different things. You can't apply what happened with X three months of time that you spent to the next. You do need to learn from it and you do need to have takeaways and and things that you look at and changes that you make. But I just, we see this too often, especially with like our wandering infant members, with people that email us. And and so many of those folks will say, oh, I tried starting a business or I tried building a course or I tried doing this. And and we'll go, okay, is it the exact same course with the exact, and, and it's never the same because you it didn't work. So you wouldn't do it again. But too many people, I think, and not saying this is you, but I just think they get kind of stuck in not sure what to do because they want maybe like the perfect idea or they want maybe the right idea. And you kind of just have to keep moving and keep trying. Right. And, or you will never know, you know, you'll just end up with years going by and going, Oh, you know, I wish I would have started a year ago. You know, we love that quote from Karen lamb, which is a year ago, a year from now, you'll have wished you started today. Right. And, and it's so important because when you think about it, 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 Even if you took a ton of imperfect action, and I'm saying you and like the royal you, even if you just started with something, even if you just kicked some idea out there, at least you'll know, okay, well, now I've learned all these other things that go along with this. All right, now I've learned what gear I need to record this stuff and and feel confident with it. You know, now I know what marketing, you know, kind of resonates or doesn't resonate at all. Uh, and, And then you apply all of those things to the next iteration of it. And I just... 
that's been my kind of MO for the long, as long as I can remember. And maybe it's a little bit naive to some degree, but I think that is helpful in a lot of ways where you just don't let yourself get overwhelmed with the thoughts of what if and all that stuff. Well, yeah, I, I think that's good advice for any beginner. I think it's a little bit different for somebody experienced. Totally. Be- because I, I do agree. Yeah. Because I, I know like for myself, I, well, there's two things that I'm up against. Number one is this needs to be one of my last ideas. I mean, mm. I, I can't, I, I don't want to keep starting over. Mm. Right. So I need to be able to make enough passive income from the next decision I make that I'm not starting over. Uh, and, and that's really important to me. And then secondly, um, because of my health concerns, it also has to produce because I don't have time to waste. Mm-hmm. I just flat out don't have it. Yeah. So, so the things I choose to do. So, so in my situation, what I'm trying to figure out is, is this the direction that I feel good about going financially for me personally, just how I feel? And then for my time. And I agree with you from the perspective that you can't sit in a place and ask those questions repeatedly, mm-hmm. right? You need to just ask the question, get the answer and go. And that's what I'm trying to do with these last few weeks here is trying to get the answer to go, right? So I'm trying to every day move this needle, which is get an answer, right? Yep. Pick an answer, um, and that's what I've been doing. And that's why the build without burnout course has been useful because it's very action oriented, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm not just sitting there like reading a book. I'm build, filling something out that gets me one step closer or starting something that gets me one step closer. Um, and then the second thing I'm doing is I'm doing the online, re- I'm doing the Google searches that I would think that people would Google if they, if I were, if they were trying to find my work, right? If I created something, this is what I think they would search for. So what's out there? And then I'm uh, seeing how that sits with me in terms of, well, I could solve that problem, but is that a problem I really want to solve? Mm-hmm. And so those are kind of my action-driven steps right now so that you know, within, within a 15-day period, I have, I have uh, an idea of where I'm going next. Right. Yeah. And I, I like the, the idea here too, which is that maybe a lot of people don't think about it this way, but it's as much doing the research to find out if you don't want to do this. That's right. right? Well, that's actually what I'm doing. Exactly. And and I think for a lot of people, they, you tend not to think about it that way because it's just like, okay, well, this is the next thing I need to do. So I need to make it work and I need to figure out everything I need to do for this to be possible, as opposed to going, let me gather all the details and all the information that I can and then go, hmm, you know what? I've actually, I've, I've done a fair assessment of this and it's not, it's not right. You know, this, this doesn't make me feel, you know, excited about it. It doesn't feel like I'm going to be the right person to maybe do this, uh, or it's just work that I don't want to be doing. Right. And, and that to me is actually, that's some of the best kind of investment in time that you can do because I think we learn so much more from the stuff that we don't want to do because then it becomes really easy to check that box moving forward 
and go, oh yeah, I remember I looked into this on the last project. Like, I don't like that thing. Like, I don't want to do that. And this new project has some semblance of that. I can move on quickly. You know, this idea is just not going to work for me. Um, and you kind of, you just build these filters for yourself, right? And and you can, then any idea that you have gets filtered through all yeah. these previous experiences, which I think is really helpful. Well, you know, and I was kind of just doing that unconsciously, I think, because of that's how I do things. You know, like at this point, that's a habit of mine when I'm thinking about new ideas is to do some research and figure out, do I really want to do this? What's the marketplace? Am I going to enjoy this? And I've just been kind of doing it unconscious. Um, so I'm glad that you've kind of framed it mm. because it reminds me a lot of, uh, a lot of something I used to talk to people a lot about, which is anti-intentions, mm. right? So people would have goals, and I would always ask them to consider when you reach that goal, what are all the things that will happen uh, that you won't like once you've reached that goal, you know? And it's like, totally. like if you want to be, if you want to be a movie star, you also have to consider that there will be plenty of times when you're having dinner and people will interrupt you. Are you cool with that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like that's just a, a basic example. But anytime you're going to achieve anything, there's going to be negative things as the result of that achievement. And that's essentially what I'm trying to figure out is what are these negative things and are there things I'm willing to accept um, in order to do this? Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. And I do that, you know, with any goal or any intention that I'm uh, setting out to achieve, I like to ask myself, what are the things about this that I might not like or enjoy that will also happen as a result of this achievement? Um, and, and am I willing to accept those? Yeah. And if you're willing to accept them, you know, then it's probably, and you're excited about the upside, then it's, it's probably something to pursue. That's been the, yeah. that's been, you know, one of the ways in which I've evaluated ideas, um, for a long time now. And I do it somewhat habitually and I don't even really think about it anymore, but that's kind of the stage I'm at right now is, am I willing to be online more? Am I willing to create content? Am I willing to, um, uh, understand SEO better. Am I willing, like, these are all things that I will have to do if I want to sell digital products and, uh, to some degree. And I'm in the stage right now of asking myself, like, I love the product, but am I okay accepting all these other things as well? And that's right where I'm at right now. Yeah. This is to me where you and I are so similar in that, the possible negative outcomes don't derail us from the potential positive outcomes. Yes. But I do think for a lot of beginners and even people who are past the beginning stage, thinking about the negative at all completely derails them. They just immediately go, oh, well, no, I don't. And I, I, I think this is actually like a very, that's probably true. it's a very common thing. And I think you and I, just the way that we look at the world, it's like, I'm, I'm just going to be rational about it. Like, I, I want to know what those things are. I want to assess them, like I mentioned a minute ago, and then go, okay, yep, that, uh, that's fine. At least I thought about them and I recognize them and I can move on from them. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, so this, this I, I want to segue into talking about the financial side of this stuff, because I think we both have a lot of different examples. Um, and I want to I want to tee up Wandering Aimfully's investment last year, because I think it would be interesting to talk to you about this now, because we did talk about it a little bit last last year while it was going on. But, you know, it's kind of like in the thick of it. So it's it's much more difficult to really weigh all the options and, and then look at it with clear vision. But uh, just to give everybody a very quick 
uh, recap. So Caroline and I, my wife Caroline and I, uh, combined our businesses last year. Uh, we thought it was going to take five weeks to build this new entity called Wandering Aimfully. We thought it was going to cost about $5,000 to build kind of like this custom WordPress site with a backend system for members and get this all set up and going. Well, long story short, <laughs> it took five months to get it going. It cost us almost $20,000. And there were many times through that process when we wanted to give up, when we were worried that we were too far down the rabbit hole, um, that we were spending more money than we wanted to. And there were all these things that, that we came up against. And we just kept asking ourselves as we came up against them, is this worth it? Should we keep going? Uh, and ultimately, we said yes. And, and what I do, what I said when we were in the kind of thick of things, and I remember when we paid like the final payment to the developer because the developer was the main cost. I think we paid our main developer like $12,000, which was thinking back on it. I mean, wish I couldn't have done that, but I did it. So it's where we are. Um, but, you know, we spent $20,000 in total for Wandering Aimfully. And in a year, Wandering Aimfully has made $80,000. So the investment has paid off. We have more than broken even on what we invested into the business for the initial investment. Now, obviously that doesn't take into account all of the monthly costs going forward. We have been net positive on all of those as well. So all in, it has been a profitable experience. And the good thing is, is we actually don't have to spend to rebuild Wandering Aimfully for as long as we would want. So truthfully, that initial investment should last us for as long as we would want, unless we want to rebuild things, in which case we would do it and we wouldn't spend money on developers to do it. We just do it ourselves as best we could because we learned that lesson. But I think it's a really interesting example of what a lot of people can get into on whatever that amount of money is. And I know you've been through this as well, which is you kind of get the ball gets moving and the I'll say debt, but like it's also an investment. The money starts to pile up a little bit more than you expected. And all of a sudden you're kind of at the end of that now going, well, I really hope this works out because I just spent five times more or 10 times more or three times more than what I wanted to. And now it really has to because I've depleted savings or what have you. Uh, and it's a really interesting thing to go through in business. And I, I just think it happens over and over again. And, and I don't know that there's any real way to avoid it other than what I like to refer to as touching the hot stove. Like it just almost has to happen for every single person in their own experience at some point to realize when things go too far. Well, I do think there's a lot to that. I, I think a lot of a lot of lessons you learn as a business owner really can't be taught. They, they can be explained. You can kind of have a, an awareness of them, but they're very hard to learn because they're so intricate and individual and based on a lot of factors that it's hard to deeply understand it. And it's the goes back to something I said a, a, sometime a few podcasts ago where there's a big difference between knowing about something and knowing it, right? Yep. And there's a big difference between under, to knowing about business financials and really experiencing business financials. Um, and, and they're just, you just can't almost do it until you're in the trenches. Now, when you're in the trenches, you can get advice and support from different individuals who can help you navigate it better, but you really got to be in it to be able to do that. You can't do it ahead of time. You know, you can't navigate it ahead of time. Um, but I do think there is a, a distinct difference, you know, and you, you 
hit on it, which is there's a distinct difference between investment capital and debt, right? So debt, obviously, you have to pay back. Investment capital is, you know, what you're putting into something, hoping for a return on, but you don't have to pay it back. And what you guys, what you guys did was make an investment into wandering aimfully, but your, your assessment of that investment was off, right? So, and that does happen and it happens in businesses in particular that are unique. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so if I'm going to start a, um, you know, pool cleaning business, for example, I can probably get a pretty good idea of what investment capital I will need because there's been hundreds of pool cleaning businesses started and that information is available. Right. Whereas in your case, you were doing something like how many wandering aimfullies are there? Now you can get some idea. Right. Uh, uh, subscription service, training, uh, uh, program, you know, like you can get some ideas, but a lot of it is going to be unknowns. And then on top of that, you have the, um, unexpecteds, right? So you have the unknowns and then you have the unexpecteds, which is something I'm grateful for learning in real estate, right? So when I've done renovation projects, or new builds, you always have, you always have to have a buffer for the unknowns and then the unexpecteds, right? So like the unknowns are what's going to be the price of steel by the time we need to build this building. Hmm. So we're going to go through two years of, um, stuff before we even break ground, right? So we have to get permits. We have to get, architectural renderings. We have to have engineers uh, do their assessments to make sure we can actually build what we want to build on this property. There's environmental inspections. All these things have to happen before we ever even break dirt, right? So that it, on new builds, that's usually a 18-month to two-year process. So the unknowns are things like, well, what's going to be... So if we're looking at a spreadsheet and we're saying, well, the price of steel is X, we're going to need X amount of steel. Therefore, our budget is Y or our budget is Z. Well, what happens if the price of steel changes, which will happen, right? But it's unknown what that price is going to be. Mm-hmm. So you're doing a variance of, say, 15%. So you're looking at, well, the price of steel probably isn't going to move more than 15% based on history and averages. Therefore, our our budget needs to vary about 15% from here um, for those unknowns. But then you have unexpecteds, right? So then you're breaking ground and you hit, you know, something that you didn't expect to hit underground, right? And now you have to account for the costs associated with the unexpecteds. So anybody who's trying to budget their business or trying to assess the investment capital they need, I'd highly encourage them to consider what are the unknowns um, and and the variance associated with those, and then what are the what are the potential what what do we need to set aside for potential unexpecteds? And of course, you don't know what you don't know 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I've I've purchased land where we had a rare mouse, no kidding, <laughs> on the property. Complete unexpected, right? Yeah. So we were going to build a shopping center and we discovered that actually we couldn't. In fact, we couldn't build anything on the land. And that's just an unexpected you can't predict, right? So uh but you need to have some sort of buffer whether it's 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever, because you're going to run into things you were not expecting to run into. Like in your case with Wandering Aimfully, what did you run into that you were not expecting to run into? Um, I would say that we got two things happened. Number one, I take the blame for not being as thorough in the scope of work for the developer like I was thorough. I had a Google Doc that outlined every single thing we wanted. There was no scope creep as people, you know, might know if you're in this world. I didn't add a whole bunch of features on. I just didn't go into as depth as I probably should have for this developer we'd never worked with before. Mm. But on the developer's fault, he misquoted us and then continued to just basically say, oh, this is going to take 30 more hours. Oh, this is going to take 30 more hours. And what we ended up doing is you then get hamstrung by this person who now controls the future of your business because he's writing all the code and you can't do that. It's a it's a very custom thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the lessons that we learned was you go into something wanting to create a, you know, a membership site is not a big deal, but a completely custom one from scratch that does the certain things that we wanted it to do in the way that we wanted it to do them is a big deal. And it's a big deal for, you know, just thinking that architecting that building that having the experience doing those things. And I think partly our fault, as I mentioned, partly his fault, uh, as mentioned, and it was just the confluence of the two things. And, And then it just became a game of, Every time we get an email from him going, oh, you know, it's going to, you know, another 30 hours, another 30 hours. And we're just watching money like funnel out of our bank account to build this thing and trying to decide at what point are we too far into it where if we were to scrap this completely, now all that money is gone and we just have to start over from scratch. Or do we just pitch in a little bit more money than we wanted? And unfortunately for us, it wasn't 10%, 20%. It was like 200 or 300% yeah. more. And and it's okay. I, I, w- I I'm not going to lie and say that I, there isn't like a tinge of just kind of like not anger, but I just am upset with the way that everything turned out and the way that it was handled. Um, but we do know that we've created something unique. We've created something good. We've created something people like, and it has worked for us, which is fine. Um, but I do, yeah, now that I know that, and, and Caroline and I had many a discussion, we even recorded a couple of these discussions as we did while we were building Wandering Aimfully. Um, one where we just admitted how much it sucked that we ran into this because a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just kind of like dust that under the rug and then, oh, wow, this all turned out fine. Uh, we didn't do that. We shared how much of a pain it was. And actually, Caroline cried on video, which we thought about not publishing, but we were like, no, this is this is really what happened. And this is what we were going through. And then the second thing is, is that now any project we work on moving forward with an outside developer, someone, you know, we have to pay to do the work. We are going to be so insanely thorough with how, like the scope that we deliver and the quote that they deliver. And we won't pay them another dollar above what they quote and keep them to that. And that sounds like, oh, well, you should have just done that in the first place. And the problem is I've built like 10 things, 20 things now by this point, and I've never had this happen before. I've maybe had the like 
20% or 50% overage, but I've never had it go this far to understand. And again, this is going back to my like touching the hot stove. Like I think I've gotten close to the stove before with projects, but this one I really like my hand was on the burner and now I know, okay, like this is, I've gone to the breaking point and I will never do this again. Okay. So I have a question. Um, Have you ever taken any project management courses, any formalized project management courses? Never. Okay. So this is what, this is my hangup that we started with is I see this across hundreds of businesses, right? You are managing a project. There is a way to manage projects actually that prevent these things or severely reduce the, the um, probability of these things from happening. There's a way to run projects over years and years of research and experience. And there are project management courses that one takes if one wants to get into the job of being a project manager, right? And there are project managers across all businesses, Mm -hmm. right? So like in banking, I was the project manager who transitioned us from customers having to drop off their checks at a bank to be able to process their checks at their own business and us having a back office process the checks on the back end of the bank, right? Uh, that transition, that's a, that's a two, that's a two and a half. That was a two and a half year project, right? From start to finish, everyone involved, everything that it took to do it. Um, in real estate, I've done several project management projects of redevelopment. So taking a building that already exists and, uh, changing something, changing the facade, replacing the roof, uh, knocking out walls, putting in glass instead of brick or brick instead of glass, whatever it might be, right? There's a project there. And this is what I find interesting about small business owners and people who work in small businesses. They often don't have the formalized education for that role in the business, right? You were a project manager in that. That was the hat you put on for that period of time, yet you didn't have any formalized training in project management. And this is what I'm trying to do with my courses. I think there's a way to teach you, small business owner or small business office manager, how to be a great project manager before you lose 80000 or $5,000 or $10,000 trying to run a project. And you can spend a couple hundred dollars on my course doing it. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's the, that's the, what I'm trying to solve, right? Um, for the community, because I've seen this countless times. And this is the thing about running a small business. You end up putting on a hat that you've never worn before or one that you don't have formalized training in. And I'm, I'm both, uh, inspired and surprised by the amount of entrepreneurs who will do this, mm-hmm. right? Who will who will run a project that's a $20,000 project having no project management experience before, no formalized project management experience and training. Yet they're, they're like, I'm all in because they're so invested in their idea, right? And they're so invested in creating something that they will literally do that, which is just mind-blowing to me. I'm a different type of entrepreneur <laughs> I get really nervous about putting on a hat 
that I don't have formalized training in. Um, uh, I do it and I've done it plenty of times, but I'm much more nervous about it. But I am surprised at how many people will do that. But it also inspires me because that's what makes uh, uh, great products and great services because people are just so interested in their idea and so committed to it that they will fumble through being a project manager for six months and spending $20,000 to get there. However, I do think there's a better way, which is I think some formalized training on that topic would be to your advantage before you put on that hat, spend that money and, and take on that time. And, uh, it's, so it's just fascinating to me how often I see that. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, that may be something to consider in, in future roles. What's interesting to me is that, I mean, I, I think pride would have probably been the first reason why I wouldn't have taken a course because <laughs> I have experience building other things. Sure. So I would have been like, oh, I have project management for it. It's fine. So that would have been the first problem why I wouldn't have bought a course for it. The second one is the thing that I've come to you many times on this, which is I would have searched only for, okay, I need project managing working with a developer as like a startup owner. And I probably wouldn't have found right. something on that. And so I would have gone, oh, okay, well, there's nothing that's going to teach me about this because I am the way my brain thinks, especially with growing up at the internet is like, I'm searching for the most specific answer. Right. So if I were to see like a project management course on, you know, just working with service providers or whatever, I would go, mm, that's not for me. I, I need, I need to solve this specific problem. So I guess there's just not a course that's available for me that I can find quickly enough, you know, with the amount of time that I would spend looking. I just am going to, you know, I'll just plow through this and put on the hat and deal with the issues. Right. So, so welcome to my world, right? Yeah, this is exactly, exactly my yeah. world. And this is what I'm trying to get at is there are timeless principles from years. I mean, hundreds of years of wisdom that so many small business owners office managers, et cetera, are just negating by trying to take on a project, trying to take on a role, trying to take on a topic that is uh, stunting their growth because they're just starting from literal scratch. And, and that's astonishing to me. And that's not at all how I learned how to build a business. And not at all how I built my businesses. Yet that's what goes on more than anything, right? That's the predominant, the predominant way to run a small business is to start from scratch and learn everything real time on your own. That is the predominant way. And yet we're just completely negating <laughs> literally centuries of wisdom because there are timeless principles that apply. And yet we haven't learned those timeless principles that would apply to whether we're a house cleaner or a web developer or a et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's what schooling is for, to learn the timeless principles. That's what an education, that's what a formalized education, that's the point of a formalized education. We've just bastardized it so much that we forget that. And, and then we just go off on our own and try to figure it out. And then we just talk to our friends. 
Yeah, and it's never been easier to start anything. So when it's never been easier to start and it's never cost as little as it costs to start something, you then just assume, oh, well, okay, like I may hit a couple bumps in the road, but I'll just figure it out or I'll find something that'll help me or I'll just throw a little bit more money at it and it'll work. And, And I do think that that is just the the plight of the small business owner in 2019 and especially online business owner, but any business owner is that we no longer get taught. And I think, I think part of this is education system. And I think part of it is our own initiative to learn, Mm -hmm. which is the education system is teaching things that are like five years behind. And I think for the majority of us, you know, when you go through college or whatever it is, whatever you're choosing to go to because you think that's the place where you should go, you're getting knowledge that's pretty much outdated by the time it's being taught, if not very outdated by the time it's being taught. So that in itself isn't helpful. And then you just see, well, if I need to learn anything about business, I'm getting, it's just old information that I'm getting. So I'll just figure it out myself. Yeah. And, and I think that was read blogs. Yeah. That was my experience for sure. Like I took a business course in college and I just laughed at it because they weren't even talking about the internet. And I just, (laughs) my mind was blown because I was like, hold on. Like what? You're not even going to say anything about it. And it's because they didn't know. And I think the other thing that's really interesting here is how much, it's a slippery slope, I think, on investing in knowledge early on as a business owner, because I think you're right. Like, I think there are some really core principles that everyone should learn. And I myself could probably still go in and learn these things. But things like sales, things like marketing, things like project management, um, all of that stuff. But because you can find a blog post so quickly in Google and because you can find a friend who has done a marketing thing that has worked really well, you tend to not want to self-learn because you can find that quickly, or I think you go the complete other end of the spectrum where you stay in research mode for way too long. And you just continually are trying to research because either you're afraid to start or you just think, oh, well, I haven't learned enough yet to actually do this and move forward. Yeah. So the the difference is the difference between knowledge and skill, right? So, so what a, what an education does is, is teach you knowledge. But then you need to actually apply that knowledge to learn the skill. And you're right. What people tend to do is focus on the knowledge and not put much attention on the skill, which goes back to that, that quote I, I had mentioned a few podcasts back about, you know, the Navy SEALs and how they believe, uh, that they do not rise to the occasion. They fall to the level of their training. Right. So that's the difference between reading something and practicing something. And sales is a good example of that. Right. You can read a blog post on how to beat a better salesperson. But the only way to be a better salesperson is to sell. Right. Mm -hmm. And to practice the skill of selling. And but but it's the same thing with like project management. Right. So you can take a course to learn the skills you need to know and the knowledge you need to understand to be a better project manager. But to actually get good at project management, of course, you have to manage lots of projects, right? But I do think you can shorten your learning curve mm-hmm. with, with a formalized education. And I say formalized, I'm not referring to university or college. I just mean in a formal uh, uh system of learning, mm-hmm. right? So like an online course is a formal system of learning. You're going course by course, you're filling things out, you're watching things. So it's not just you, you know, day to day 
randomly learning. It's you're going through a course learning in a formalized way. I think you shorten your learning curve by doing things in a formalized way like that. Then I think you have to have uh, lots of practice. So you need to be able to practice those skills that you just learned so that you become an expert at them or become a master at them. And it's the combination of those two things that matters most, which is why I've done all the work that I've done. So when I go into clinics or I go into, you know, a small business or a retail store, I educate them. But what we mostly do is just practice, right? Just like a tennis coach. I'm like, okay, practice the serve again. Okay, now serve again. Okay, now serve again. Right. And, and that's what we do. That's what I do with my consulting, which is we just practice over. Okay. Now, now answer the call again. Now this time, don't use this word, use that word. And it's that minute, right? It's like, don't use this word, use that word. Don't use that word, use this word. Use these two words combined. Now practice saying them again. Now practice saying them again. Right. And it's that repetitive nature of it that you actually become good at these things. And I think there are skills that a small business owner and people who manage small businesses need who don't, they don't practice them. Mm -hmm. They, they at best learn about them, but they don't practice them. And, and that's what gets them in trouble, right? They don't practice them enough to get really good at them. And then they find themselves in places like significant debt because they didn't practice the skills they needed to not find themselves there. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's just so interesting being a human being. <laughs> like it's, it just makes me think about, you know, all the, the things where, you know, someone, even like myself, like you could avoid a lot of problems, but like that hindsight is obviously sure. 2020. Um, okay. So let's, let's segue into, uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about with that, that specific thing. Um, I did want to talk about, so just maybe some of your ideas on when it's right to invest in, in an idea, how much you should invest in an idea. Um, and I'll just quickly, you know, for us, you know, we don't tend to take on much large financial risk for our projects. And I think that's the nature of running internet businesses is that you can really keep things on a fairly tight budget um, if you're not building something completely custom. But say you're just, you know, creating a, a website for your digital agency. Um, you know, it, it really doesn't take that much to do that anymore. And, you know, gone are the days when someone can charge you $10,000 to set up a creative agency website, you know, that can be spun up, you know, in, in you know, quickly, it's like just Squarespace for $26 a month or whatever, um, or probably even less than that, uh, you can do it and you can have a website built in and you just have to, you know, maybe pay a designer or whatever. But I'm curious how you look at, at those things for yourself and in, in either a new idea or existing ideas. Cause I think for us, the thing that we want to invest the most in, on any project is the experience that the person has on the other end, in which case design is very important. Um, you know, having quality video, if we're doing any video stuff or photos, uh, we almost always do a photo shoot for any project that we work on, whatever that, that means, because we want it to feel extremely thoughtful. Um, but there are a lot of times when we invest in things that people may not invest in. Um, and it's, it's kind of, project by project on how much we spend and, and what it needs. But I think we're always willing to invest a little bit more than maybe most people would because the we want the experience to be a little bit better than most would give. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, the way I can uh, break this down, I think, is just looking at the businesses I'm working on now, perhaps, and and what I think about. So take the coffee shop, take Youngblood Coffee, right? So a coffee shop, the, the way I look at it first is I always try to get what is the industry knowledge I need. Okay, so so in coffee, what are the industry standards? So what are the expenses you would typically have? What are the profit margins you could typically expect? What are the um, wholesale costs you would typically have to, the cost of goods that you would have to take on? What does a traditional coffee shop uh, take on in terms of investment capital or debt? So I try to get, I try to get a baseline. I always try to get a starting point baseline based on years of history, right? It's, I'm not the first one to start a coffee shop. So I shouldn't just think completely outside of the box to begin with. I should look at just what are the industry basics? Now I'm going to have my own thoughts on those, right? Based on my own experiences, based on my ideas, um, where it gets a lot more creative, but having a baseline really makes sense to me. So when I was working with the surgeon, it's pretty obvious. Okay. What is a typical surgeon, uh, make per hour? Um, what does a, what does a practice like that take on as debt? Like what kind of equipment does a practice like that need and how much does that cost? Uh, what is a debt to income ratio that a bank is willing to accept? for a business in this industry. And I just kind of go down the list of the basic standard questions for that industry so that I have a baseline of what if if I was if I were super average, this is what I could expect from this. And that's my starting point. And then from there, I say, well, I'm not average. I'm going to be better at this. So where is my leverage? So one of the first things I think we talked about, maybe even the, in the about episode was I have the five things I'm kind of evaluating a business and an idea by. And one of those is what impact can I personally make? So what leverage do I have special knowledge in this industry? Do I have, um, you know, a unique talent? Do I have something that I bring to the table that takes the, probability of the averages and moves them above average. So I'm very technical about this, as you can tell. Um, yeah. so, so I'm saying to myself, okay, coffee shop, what's the average? Tell me what the average they make. Tell me the average they profit. Tell me the average debt they have. Tell me the average uh, debt to income ratio a bank loan uh, will be, would be. I just look at all the averages, right? And then I say, all right, what do I bring to the table that could, the, the, the probability could increase that I could reach above average status at this. Do I have anything? Do I have to acquire it? Do I know people? Right. And I figure those things out. And then I figure out, okay, what are the major downsides of this? So then I'm looking at, okay, 
if this fails miserably, does this ruin my life totally? Does this ruin other people's lives? Uh, will I, will it ruin my credit? Will it ruin, um, uh, my ability to get money in the future, my ability to make money in the future? I just kind of look at like doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. What, what are the, what are the black swans? You know, I know black swans are things you can't really predict, but, what are the things that could happen here that would just make this a total disaster? What does that outcome look like? So now I've got the average, the above average, and the total doom and gloom in front of me. And from there, I decide how much am I willing to invest in this money and time based on average outcomes, above average outcomes, and major downside. That gives me a really good kind of triangulation of, okay, I feel like this is the max I'm willing to invest. This is the minimum I have to invest. And somewhere in between these two is probably where this is going to fall. Am I comfortable with that? And that's kind of how I arrive at a position of being comfortable enough to say, I'm willing to take on $100,000 in debt, but not $200,000. Or I know I have to take on at least $50,000 in debt, but I don't want it to pass $200,000, right? So I kind of just find my range of comfortability. That's how I go about it. Now, have you found yourself in a position, I mean, I'm guessing the answer is yes, just in the history of time, but um, where we were last year with Wandering Aimfully, where like I, we, I felt like we set a higher number than we were willing to invest. I felt like we got ourselves prepared, you know, for what we could do. And then we found ourselves just having to like dig into our bank account and keep spending and keep spending to keep it going. And how do you deal with that? You know, like how do you, number one, decide to keep going or number two, realize, oh, I'm in over my head. I need help or something needs to happen. Yeah. So I have definitely personally experienced that in very, (laughs) very difficult. It makes, makes all of us feel validated. Which is what led me to create that triangulation, right? So much like you, you know, I have an idea. I'm like excited about it. I want to try it. I've never worn this hat, that hat, this hat, that hat. Oh, well, I'll just put the hat on and see how it goes. Right. And, and gotten myself into some significant trouble. Right. So, so I'm trying to prevent that trouble. You know, part of this podcast is hopefully to prevent that trouble for other people. (laughs) But like you say, sometimes you got to touch the stove, you know, that's just kind of how it is. So you do these things to try to help people and sometimes they learn and sometimes they touch the stove and then they learn and, you know, that's kind of how it goes. But yeah, I found myself in situations, I mean, across the board, right? So. I found myself in, in, in situations where I've started businesses. W- w- one of the hardest things you asked the question of like, how do you know to keep going? I think that's the hardest question to answer. And I think it's mm-hmm. so individualized. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong, only trade offs. And that's the thing about business. I think that you, you, the sooner you realize that there's very few rights and very few wrongs. And really just a set, a set of trade-offs. And you have to decide, am I willing to trade this for that? Um, the, the, the easier or not maybe the easier, but the, the uh, less stressful business becomes is the sooner you say there's not a right or wrong answer to this question. I just have to determine, am I willing to trade this for that? I think the stress reduces in business. 
uh, once you reach that stage. But I've worked with lots of people that have been in this situation and I've, um, uh, been in this situation myself. I was in the situation where we, um, took on investment capital and debt capital, bought a building, had a construction loan for that building to redesign the building, hired an architect, worked with that architect for six months, hired a builder, was getting ready to, to get the builder to build, only to find out the architect didn't follow some of the city guidelines and find ourselves having to end up, you know, six months later, having to have hired a new architect, spent an extra $500,000 on an already $1.5 million budget, um, and, and try to explain that to our investors, try to explain it to the bank, um, and try to manage the project with our cash flow to still get the project done, right? So I found myself very much in that exact, that, you know, that scenario where I was like, I don't know, I don't know what we do here. Like, I don't know if we just half do the project, do the other half later. If we try to get another bank loan, if we try to renegotiate, you know, you find yourself in these difficult positions. But again, there's no right answer, right? Only trade-offs. So were we willing to trade, trade less of a return on our personal investment to keep the investors whole to keep the project going? Ended up being the trade-off, right? So I personally earned less on that project to make sure the investors earned what I promised them and to make sure that the bank didn't uh, uh, come down on me hard because I couldn't meet some of the obligations. So that's an example of a trade-off. But you don't know until you're in that place mm-hmm. what the trade-offs you're going to have to make are. And you don't know if if they're right for you or not. So it's hard to hard to have a um, specific process for that. Um, I do think it just comes down to, again, the triangulation that I talked about earlier. For me, it comes down to, am I staying within my range? Or am I stretching outside of this range completely? And if I'm stretching outside that range completely, well, then I have to know how I'm going to make up the down, the, the, uh, additional costs. So I don't move forward personally until I've determined how am I going to make up these costs? Where will these costs be made up if that's the case? Is that how you did it? Or did you just say, I'm going to, these are going to be sunk costs and I'm moving forward on this idea anyway? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. We, you know, we we operate a profitable online business as a household and have for the past couple years, really since 2013, which is fantastic because before that, I ran a not positive, profitable business and it was just miserable. So when you have money that you can dip into, I think it helps you go further in a project than you might. Sure. So that's where we were last year, for sure. I think if we were at a place where we didn't have leftover profits, savings, if you will, uh, to dip into, I mean, I don't think I would have racked up credit card debt probably would have been the way that I would have done it. I don't think I would have done that mm-hmm. for Wandering Aimfully if we were at that place. If we didn't have that nest egg of savings to dip into, I think I honestly would have said, Okay, like we spent the $5,000 we could spend, talked to the developer at an exhausted amount of time, and he said this is probably going to be two or three times more money than we w- what we want to spend. We have to scrap it, start over. We wasted that money, but 
we, we can't spend anymore. We have to do what we can. And I think it's different when you do have that, that opportunity to take more money, you know, kind of like your, your building example, you know, because you had some way of getting more money in your instance, a shitload more money than what we're talking about, but still it's just more money. You, you can then make that decision maybe a little bit easier because you do have some access to capital. And we had that last year. But I do think that for, you know, maybe people listening to this or where we've been in the past, both of us uh, in different instances, there are times when you don't have access to that capital and you just have to go, okay, you know, this could have maybe worked out had I had X amount more money to invest in it, but I didn't and I can't move forward. And that's just the nature of the game. That's just part of business and it's part of doing taking chances and taking risks is that they don't always work out and you don't always have some kind of helping hand, whether it's one that you've planned for or one that you can get to move you and move that needle forward on, on that business opportunity. Yeah. And, and this is where I think you, you put that perfectly, I think. Um, and people should take heed to that based on my personal experience and all the, all the small business owners I've worked with over the years that, um, you, you really need to examine whether or not it's, it's realistic or not for you to stop. Right. So, mm. and this is where I think, um, advisors, uh, informal advisors are so critical. And this is why I'm part of Starbucks, the nonprofit organization in Portland, Oregon. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's a founder supported network of founders. So only people that have been in the same situations that you are in and they're trying to help you see clearly more than anything else. Right. They're not trying to, uh, give you advice per se, but just help you see your situation clearly because you can put on rose colored glasses um, very easily when you're building something you're excited about and something that you're really interested in and, and something you don't want to, and, or something, if you failed, you'd be very embarrassed about. You can put on rose colored glasses and get yourself in a world of hurt, which I've also done. Right. So mm. I can remember I did a, a residential um, house, a flip, right. And, um, <clears throat> my original budget was $20,000 and I got an investor to invest that $20,000 in the original budget. I did not, at that point, I had not gone through any formalized project management training. And so I was managing the project. I had flipped other houses. So like you, I thought, well, I've done this before, so I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up hiring a contractor for the first time, you know, the first time we were working together and, uh, we agreed on a budget, we had a scope of work and then suddenly he wanted to do more work. And I just didn't know how to formally handle that correctly or how to prevent that from happening in the first place. Now I do. Um, but at the time I didn't. And I was like, well, so I did the opposite of you. The mistake I made in, in the situation is I had personal money that was sitting on the side. And I said, well, you know, I really want this. I really want to finish this house and I really want to get it on the market for sale. And I think I do need to upgrade these cabinets. And I think I do need to, you know, he wanted to take out a wall and open up the kitchen. And it was a good idea, but it was not in my budget. Right. Um, but I went for the good idea because I had some cash. So the mistake I made is because I had the cash, I went for the good idea, 
but it really wasn't in the budget of that project. It really wasn't going to give me enough upside, but it was a good idea. And so, you know, I spent $20,000 of my own money that I never got back out of selling the house. We couldn't, I couldn't sell it for what I wanted to sell it for. Then I had to lower the price, then lower the price again, then get the house sold. And, uh, I didn't make my money back. So I lost $20,000 on that house, right? That's a good example of where you might have money on the side, but I, I had rose colored glasses on at the moment and I couldn't see clearly that this was a, while fundamentally a good idea for the house was not a good idea for this project. And I overspent and undermade, you know, and that money's just gone. Yeah. And it's, it sucks. <laughs> no, it, tell me about it, man. Yeah. I just, I, I think that's one of the things too, that even, you know, you have way more experience in this with way more different types of investments, way more different, I think even types of debt than I do. But, you know, I've been through a similar experience with the one house that I've owned. And now I feel like I'll never own a house again, which will probably change because <laughs> I'll own it in a different way. And we've talked about that a little bit um, before. And I just think that there, there is so much to be said for, again, you can even get formalized training in a lot of this stuff, but that can only take you so far into sure. the specific situation that you are in is so specific to you um, that you have to figure it out. But I do want to I want to circle back to Youngblood because I know that a couple episodes ago we did talk about Youngblood has a potential investment opportunity, and I think that fits with kind of the conversation that we're having. And you were assessing what that was looking like before. And you had said, you know, we could go the investor route, which then dilutes kind of your ownership and, um, you know, the existing uh, owner, Tim, right, of Youngblood and his wife of how much they own. Or you could go the bank route where then you don't dilute any ownership, but you just have to kind of pay interest on leveraging that money, uh, debt, if you will. Um, so where where are you on that and how are you looking at it both from those different perspectives? Because I think it's probably changed since we last chatted. Yeah. So a couple of things that I, I'm thinking about, we haven't, we haven't formalized any decisions yet, but couple of things, a couple of things that I'm thinking about. Number one, that's one of them, right? So one of them is you don't have to rush this stuff, right? So, so yeah, we have a space that came available and yeah, uh, the previous business owner in that space went out of business and he's trying to flip, you know, he's trying to sell some of his equipment, um, uh, and kind of flip his lease to a, a new, uh, business owner, um, but, but that's not like if he sold today, like if, if Tim called me and said somebody else took the space, I would just go, okay. Right. So like yeah. you, you've got to be okay with the idea that while that certainly things are timely, um, some, you know, if it doesn't line up, it doesn't line up and you just pass. There's always another opportunity. I, this reminds me of when I used to be, um, a stock trader, a day trader. And, you know, the old, the old lesson is the deal of the century comes along every single day in stocks, <laughs> yeah. right? Like somebody's got the stock of the century today and that happens every single day. So you just got to know that there's always another opportunity. So that's how I'm taking this. I'm taking my time. We're doing the diligence we need to do and we're not going to rush into it. Um, the next thing is, is, I always, I'm always concerned about debt on a timeline. So mm. as a general rule, I am very cautious these days of taking on debt that is paid back on a specific timeline. So when you take investment capital, 
that's that's usually you pay the investment capital back, not on a timeline usually, but on events, right? So a cash out event, a capital event, that's when you pay back the investment, the, the, the money you took on. But with, with, uh, banks mostly, you're paying back debt on a specific timeline, right? Like they want you to make a monthly payment or something like that, right? So, yep. so as a general rule, I'm very hesitant to get into agreements that debt has to be paid back on a specific timeline, whether that's buying a car, using a credit card, getting a mortgage, whatever it might be. So I'm very careful about those. And the way I look at that is I make sure, you know, I asked him, I said, do we have one year's worth of debt payments set aside? If like, if, if we couldn't make any more money, could we pay this debt for one full year without making another dollar? Yes or no? Cause that's an important question for me to determine whether we should take that debt on. And then the second question is, I, I never, I never look, I know that this is what banks do, but I don't do this. I never look at debt, taking on debt as what's the potential upside to pay it off. Hmm. I look at, can I currently pay it off? Under my current conditions, would I be able to pay it off? And I do that. So, so like if I were going to start a new business and I needed a loan, it would be an equity loan, not a debt loan, because I would not be able to pay it back, uh, out of the business because the business doesn't exist yet. Right. So I wouldn't want to take that on as debt. I would take it on as equity. And in this case, what I asked him, you know, I asked him the year question and then I asked him, uh, what, what is, uh, the bank's rule of thumb? The two banks we're looking at. What is their rule of thumb of, of debt to income ratio? So how much debt would they allow us to take on for the income we make? Um, what's their maximum? And, and how is that in relation to what we want to borrow? So I also look at a lot of times borrowing more than I need because if they're going to give it to me, it's hard to get a bank loan. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to get it, get it, right? Go all in and get the damn thing and then use the extra money, set the extra money aside to actually pay the loan. So I said, do we have a year's worth on the side? And then I said, you know, what's their debt to income ratio? How much money could we get? What's the maximum amount we could borrow? And how much do we need? So if we need, say, 80,000, but they're willing to lend us 100,000, I'll take the 100, spend the 80, set aside the 20 to pay debt service on the 100. And then that gives me a runway to start making more money in the new location to actually pay the debt service with it. So those are a couple of things I'm analyzing and thinking about before I take it on. The other thing I'll say is you mentioned, you know, bringing on another partner, taking on equity, right? Um, and not debt. Um, I'm not, I'm not thrilled about that option because my ownership percentage is so low mm -hmm. where it'll dilute my ownership percentage even further. Now, if I owned 95% of this business, I might think about that option much differently. If I'm Tim and Alicia, I think about that option much differently, right? Then, then if I were them, I would be thinking about it much differently than I'm thinking about it. 
But I'm not thrilled with that option um, unless there is a significant enough investment where there is a clear path in my mind to us at least quadrupling our money. And then in addition, my money would need to be paid back instantly, my original capital. So I would say, yeah, we can take on, I'm willing to lower my equity in this business if you give me $20,000 and I see, I see that that person's putting in enough money that we can go and quadruple the original investment that we had. Otherwise, I just don't see enough upside there for me personally. Like it'll amount to, you know, a few thousand dollars over the next several years. I, I don't know why I would give up my interest in the business for that. Yeah. And there is something to be said uh, on the investor side of things, which is strategic investment. And I think this is basically what you're talking about when you say quadrupling, you know, the money that you guys would get. But let's say that the investment wasn't just from some rich guy in some city, but it was from some rich guy who owns a chain of hotels and knows a bunch of restaurants and could like cash you into a wholesale network that immediately flips another zero into the the profit column because they have all these relationships and, and that that yeah that's that's what I'm the shark the shark tank model yeah yeah I mean I it is interesting when you have investment in in those ways but I do from my own experience the only times I've ever been offered investment either from a you know private investor or from just like, you know, the little kind of um, things that come up, like PayPal offers you money. I guess that's more debt, though. That's not even an investment. That's just debt. But yeah, I guess it's only private investors for me. It's never been strategic enough. And that's the thing that's always confused me is I'm like, well, why am I giving up a percentage of my and like, you can't even make an impact on my business. You're just giving me cash, which can be helpful. But once you learn that if you just get cash and you can't actually leverage it as, as quickly as you want. And like you said, like make the, the, the kind of increase that you want, you're just diluting your potential return of your own money, which as a business owner is kind of a dumb thing to do, but it seems sexy to get an investor, right? Like, I think we live in this time <laughs> where it, it, but I'm right. Aren't I think I? you're like, right. I do. I think we, right, yeah. we live in this it's incredibly weird time where like, I got an email from uh, Stripe the other day. Stripe is starting to do some small business and they're calling them investments because they're, you don't have to make monthly payments on them where they look at your transaction data in your account and they tell you, Hey, we're willing to give you $10,000 interest free, uh, you know, for whatever the term is or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like I didn't even look further into it because I just don't, I'm, I'm not interested at all, but the way that they position it is we're like, you're doing so well, we want to invest in you. And that starts to become the, like the psychological game that people see as small business owners where they go, Oh, if I'm getting investment, it means I'm doing well. And I should have an investor because that means that I'm like playing business, right? You know, like I'm, (laughs) I'm winning the business game and I'm moving on the business board and going in the right direction. What, and what people don't realize, and I, I think you can speak to this more than I can, but it's just been my own experience is not all investment is created equal and most investment is really just another way of saying debt. Yeah. That, Unless it's, well, that's the thing you have to be careful about, right? Yeah. That's what you really yeah. have to be careful about. And that's, and that's why an education really matters because 
when you understand how money really works, you understand what you're getting yourself into. You know how many business owners I've talked to who say to me, I didn't realize this is what I was getting myself into. Oh, yeah. Right? You sign a contract, you sign a lease, you all sorts of things, right? And they say, I didn't realize this is what I was getting myself into, right? And uh, it's across the board, right? So we've all been there. We've all done that. And what what we want to do is avoid doing that, right? And oftentimes with investments, quote unquote, that's what's happening. You're ultimately getting yourself into something you didn't realize you were getting yourself into. And that's why I believe that like, you know, And again, we're not talking about high growth markets or high growth businesses, right? Not startups, not where we're not in, in those cases, you have to just burn through money to try to, to try to reach some scale first or second before everyone else. Like that's the game, right? We're not talking about that kind of business. So in the businesses that we're talking about, small businesses, service providers, online businesses, et cetera. Your goal is to always keep your debt to a minimum and to not keep piling on debt. The people, you know, one of the things that I always, uh, makes me squeamish is like, if I'm at a conference or something and I hear somebody like, I maxed out all my credit cards, I, you know, did, you know, you hear stuff like that and you're like, oh God, like, don't tell that story. Like, even though that was a successful story, because then people get the idea that that's what you got to do. Right. And that's not at all what you should be doing. You should be really looking at debt in a very conservative way and being very careful about the investment capital you take on and any debt in return that you're going to owe. And I've always tried to be as careful as possible, uh, you know, in the last, say, 10, 12 years. In my first, um, in my first several years, I was very cavalier. In my last kind of 12 years, I've been very conservative and that served me very well, very, very well. I don't think there's anything more important than strong cash flow and then built up reserves and low debt. Like those are the three things you're trying to accomplish. Strong cash flow, built up reserves for unexpected experiences, and then um, low debt. Right. That's ultimately what you're trying to do. Now, I think using it strategically, debt and investment capital can serve you very well. Right. Like they they can they can help you out in situations that get you over certain humps. But the way you want to look at it is how quickly can you get rid of that is is kind of, you know, the the objective. So the way I invest is I always look at it based on how quickly I'll get my money back. And the way I accept in investments in my projects or debt in my projects is how quickly can I pay it off, right? So I'm always looking at those two things. So I would encourage anybody listening to this to look at it in terms of time, not just money, right? And that goes for like buying a car, right? Like, I, you know, of course, the, the standard way to buy a car is to think, what's my monthly payment? Mm-hmm. The standard way I look at a car is how quickly can it be paid off? Right. And if I can buy it cash, I'll do that first. If I'm not going to buy it quick cash, how quickly do I own it? How quickly can I pay this off? The same thing with the debt you take on for your business. But there are times where you're going to, it, depending on what you're doing, you know, online is a little different because there's not a lot of investment, not, not big time. Like 
you know, if you're building a surgery center, like with this past surgeon, right, he had to invest in a building, equipment, et cetera. He could use his own money or he could leverage a bank. And in that case, it's better to leverage the bank. Mm -hmm. Can I quickly ask you about the car thing? Because we have differing views on this. Yeah, go for it. So in my experience, um, I've bought a lot of cars and I've learned very quickly that cars suck and that people want to pay less for your car than you did when you originally bought it. This is why <laughs> cars are depreciating assets. Yeah. Um, and what I've learned over the years is that I would rather not pay cash for a car because I know that in paying that cash, I've essentially just thrown away a good percentage of it. And if I run the math and I go, okay, I'm going to keep this car for three years. I'm going to pay X amount per month. So my total investment into this car is, and let's just use round numbers, $500 a month, $6,000 a year, $18,000 my total investment into this car. And then I'm going to you know, either give that car back as a lease or I'm going to you know, sell the car or whatever. So I look at it that way and then I go, okay, but if I was to pay the car off and let's say the car costs $36,000. So if I then spend the full amount of money to pay off the car tomorrow, I can't sell that car for $36,000. Like it is already lost 10, 20, 30% in value because that's just the nature of all cars that are bought and sold. I'm now just giving that money away. I'm just throwing that money away, essentially. So I'm curious how you think about that differently because that's the way that my mindset has changed on cars where I just think about the amount of time I'm going to keep them and the amount of money that I would spend in that time and know the difference between if I was to buy this in cash, I'm now going to be out X amount of dollars as opposed to just leveraging a, a loan for it and then getting out from under the car and you know, moving on to the next car that I'm going to buy or whatever. Yeah. So I really grazed over that. So I'm glad you want to get down into the weeds of this because there's multiple, there's multiple things here. You're talking about a couple of different scenarios. So the first, yes. so the first is used versus new. Yes. The second is lease versus buy. And then the third is cash versus debt, right? So cash versus loan. So I, I, I look at it this way above all, all of those things, I'm going to jump into those three things, but before I say all of those things, first, it's how well, how well is this going to help me sleep at night, right? So anytime I owe somebody money, I don't sleep well. And anytime my income could go away and I would still owe that person money, I sleep even less well. And anytime my income could go away, I owe that person money and I owe it on a specific timeline, I sleep even poor, <laughs> more poorly. So for me personally, a lot of what I do is about how well I'm going to be able to sleep, right? Like how stressful this is to me. So this is a sleep tax for you is what we're yeah, talking about. It yeah. is, right? Yeah. It really is. And so I start there. So let's go down the three things. So new versus used. So if you want a new car, don't buy it outright. I 100% <laughs> yeah. agree yeah. with you. If you want a new car, probably best to um, pay a, you know, a monthly payment on it. Secondly, probably best to lease if you're going to change cars in three years. The question I ask yeah. you is, why are you changing cars in three years? Well, it, it was that way for us. So specifically with the car that we owned before the Tesla is we, we did that on a three-year lease because... I had set a goal that I wanted to own a Tesla yeah, okay. in three years. So that was like a finite, like, I know I'm going to do that. But even before that, I had just realized my, like, 
I, so where you can't sleep at night because you have like a looming car payment over you, I can't sleep at night because I actually loathe getting in the car and it's a negative experience in my life. And I know that that sounds super weird, but it's also something that like, it's one of the few things in life where I spend money and I get exponential return in positive feelings. Yes. Uh, So like that, so like for me, yeah, it's like a, it's like a positivity tax almost where you have a sleep tax. I have like the, I'll spend money on a car because I know that every time I get behind the wheel, if I enjoy it, man, I I enjoy it. Like I soak it in. I have gratitude for it. Like it's a very different thing. And and that may not be for most people the way that they think about it. So again, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so the way I look at it is I don't want to change cars every three years and I don't want that payment. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want just a nice stable vehicle that will last me a long time. Um, with little upkeep, right? So that's where I start from. So I'm going to buy used, not new. And I'm not going to, if I were going to buy, you know, if I wanted the latest, greatest, I would just lease a car. Yeah. I would just lease it for three years, be done with it, trade it in, get the next thing. Right. But I usually don't want the latest, greatest. Um, as we've all learned here, I'm the (laughs) Luddite of the two of us. So, so you're always out in front. I'm always catching up. Right. So, so for me, like I have a 2004 Jaguar that I bought for (laughs) $2,000 that I love. Like I take that thing out just like you when you get in your Tesla and I go up into the mountains through the winding roads up here by my place. And I just love it. I'm just like, you know, you, I could not be happier with what my experience is, but I literally paid $2,000 for it. Yeah. Right. And I have no car payment. It doesn't bother me. I don't owe anyone anything. I don't owe anyone anything on a specific timetable. And that makes me feel great. Right. So, so that's kind of where I'm at with cars is, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy something older, something I love, something that, that uh, I can pay cash with, but I don't, I probably, I've never spent more than $15,000 on a vehicle. Oh, and I've, brother. <laughs> and, I've o- and I've only ever done that once. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, you know, but I drive, I drive a Range Rover that I paid $12,000 for. Yeah. Right. So, so like I just, I don't, I, I love cars, man. And I, and I should say I've invested in these are everyday drivers. I've invested in other cars that I've just wasted money on because they're fun, right? Those are like projects though. That's not like a financial yeah. decision. Yeah. So I just want to be clear. I've spent plenty <laughs> of money on cars, unfortunately, but that's yeah. just for hobby purposes. But as a yeah. practical matter and a financial matter, I'm never going to spend probably more than $15,000 on a vehicle. My whole, my, I imagine my whole life. Um, and I'm going to buy it outright and keep it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, uh, just very quick, uh, dumb Jason, when he was 24 years old, had set a goal that by 25, he wanted to own a Porsche. And so at the time I was making $5,000 a month and I took on a $1,200 per month car payment. (laughs) It was not sustainable, Greg, not a sustainable amount of money to be spending on a car at that age. And yeah, I just, you know, I learned a pretty expensive lesson early on about that, but, uh, you know, it, it is something where 
I've learned from my own personal enjoyment of cars. I've learned how to curtail that. We drove a very modest Volkswagen SUV. With the first year of payments, we I, I convinced to not have to pay for it by doing some sponsorship stuff with the the actual local dealership. That was a time when we were paying off over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. So um, even though you know we could have just bought a really cheap used car, I found a way to not have to pay for a car at all for a year and to still have a car that I didn't hate getting yeah, into, which was smart. Um, so I think you had one more point, which was cash versus debt. And um, the way that I'll just, it, because that spurs a thought for me, which I'll tell you um, how I think about it. And I'm curious if it's the same way you think about it, which is the money that I could spend paying off a car is money that I could invest in a business opportunity or in improving a business, which has a much greater return than the the amount of debt that I'll be paying or the interest I'll be paying on the debt of something like a car payment. And so that's kind of where I weigh the option of like, let's say I'm buying a $30,000 car, just for example. Okay, whether it's used or new, it's say $500 a month is the the amount for the loan. I could spend $30,000 right now to have that car debt-free, own that car. Or I could leverage the loan and just pay it $500 a month and then take, say, $20,000 of that cash and go, I have a business idea I want to invest in that could bring me 5 to 10x the amount of that money that I'm, I'm, you would be spending on a car. I'd rather have that money sitting available to be able to use as leverage for an idea over something I want to work on. I think of it slightly different, I think, than you do, but I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, okay. for, for and I figured, I figured you did think about it differently, but I was also curious if you were going to say I was a lunatic for the thing I just explained, <laughs> which I'm glad. You no, didn't yet. no, I think that's, no, I think that's a smart way to, to look at things. I do. Um, I will say also I owned a Porsche, but I just paid $12,000 cash for it and it was fine. You know, I mean, it was fun to yeah, drive. You, you picked a much less expensive Porsche. This is not good. I think I did. Yeah. I think I did. Yeah. yeah. I think yours was probably a lot cooler. Oh yeah. Mine. It was brand but, new. It was brand know. new. It was all blacked out. I mean, it was all the things, all the bells and whistles. It was everything a 24 year old would need. <laughs> so the one fortunate thing for my, between my life and your life, because we've had such similar lives is I had a catastrophic life threatening illness at yeah. the age of 23. And thank God. <laughs> because otherwise I'd probably be in a Porsche paying $2,900 a month right now. Still some from douche. 23, from 23 yeah. though. Yeah, yeah. Somehow you had yeah, like yeah, a I still seven, pay, yeah, exactly. yeah, 17 year. It probably year. doesn't even run anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I'm still paying on yeah. it. Yeah. Somehow you got a 17 year loan on a car at like 38% interest. Well, the only difference between you and me is that I had a life changing experience <laughs> at a young enough age where uh, it just took you a few more years to learn those lessons that I had to learn you yeah. know, a little earlier. Cause otherwise yeah. I probably, we would have just written the same, you know, memoir. Yeah. I hope everyone knows I'm not laughing at your life-threatening illness because I just played that back in my head. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds kind of morbid. <laughs> I'm just laughing at Greg being, you know, on the, on his deathbed. No, uh, no. Greg and I've known each other for a long time. I'm always the one who tries to joke about his life-threatening illness because no one else I think wants to. Um, yeah. And I and actually it, appreciate that fact yeah. because everyone else wants to talk to me about how I'm dying. And that's just not a fun conversation to have every single day with every single person. So, yeah. I don't really care. Um, I just tell you to sack up. Like it's about time yeah, you just yeah, like so. got out of bed and you're fine. But getting back to your point, yes. this is the moment in our podcast where everyone grabs their beer or their shot glass or whatever they have. <laughs> Here we go. Here we be go. Because what I'm about to say is 
I kind of think of this similar to how Robert Kiyosaki. Hey, <laughs> we we didn't have a Robert Kiyosaki last episode, and I know I, I, know. I realized it, and I was like, oh man, for I the folks too. at home, I was really sad about it. Yeah, um, this is great. I'm so glad we got to bring him back. I around. almost texted you to see if maybe we wanted to <laughs> do an addendum, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah, add yeah. a few minutes. Oh, to hey the guys, pod. sorry. Uh, just want to let you know uh, we realized <laughs> that we didn't get it in. Here it is. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Um, but which is. I don't, I don't necessarily, so mine is slightly different from him even, but I don't usually think about where can I put my money for the biggest return? I, I just, that's not that exciting. That's not an exciting life thing for me. <laughs> like I just, I usually think about, um, one, what helps me sleep? You know, what, what just relaxes me, makes me calm. I don't feel a lot of pressure or stress about it. And then two, I think of it, I, I like to look at where I can put my money for a return, but I don't necessarily measure it. I, it it's to fuel my personal life, right? So, so the example I would give is, is like if I wanted to own a Porsche, I wouldn't take on a Porsche as a liability. I would go acquire another asset or improve an asset I already have to then be able to acquire the Porsche. So, so give a specific example of what that would be. Yeah. So, so, um, let's say, uh, well, let's just stick with that example. So let's say I wanted to get a new car and I was going to spend $15,000 on the car. I don't like go into my savings, get $15,000, go down to a car dealership and and give them $15,000. I like it. I like to have more of a game to it. So I say, what could I do to make $15,000 in the next six months or in the next year so that I could go buy that car? And then I pursue that, get the $15,000 and then go buy the car. So, so my game is utilize an asset for a liability, right? So don't just take on the liability with your savings, improve an asset or acquire an asset so that you can then have the liability is how I look at it. And I know Robert Kiyosaki looks at it similar to that. Um, and that's how I look at, that's how I've looked at acquiring everything that exists in my life um, for probably about the last 12 years or so, where if I want it, well, then I need to go create enough money to get it, even if I have enough money to get it, because it's the game of creating enough money to get it that motivates me to not spend my savings and deplete my savings or my future uh, retirement to acquire things that that are fun for me, but are financially detrimental to my future. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So let me ask you a question. What percentage of your savings, if any, are you willing to use for new ideas or new opportunities? Which I hope this actually brings it back around to your build without burnout product pony, yeah. which is like, you're going to have to invest some money for that. And it may not be very much, but it has to be some. Is there a percentage of your savings that you kind of always have that's like four new ideas, four things? Or do you not think about it that way? Or how do you think about it? 
I don't have a specific percentage or anything like that. I, I really don't think about it that way. Like I think about savings. So I think about like immediate savings, savings I have access to liquid funds as protection. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I don't want to invest that because I don't know if I, if I invested in this idea and this idea fails, well, I've just made myself more vulnerable, which is my number one rule. If you remember the five things I discussed, I think in the about episode was my number one thing is to make sure my assets are not vulnerable. So I wouldn't spend my savings on a new idea because that would just make me more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So, so that's one. And then two, um, however, I do look at like, how could I spin off money? And this might be semantics. I don't know, but how could I spin off money? So, so I've been thinking about developing these courses, right? And the money that I'm going to need to invest in there. I have money invested in Youngblood, right? That I haven't gotten back yet. So my, my thought right now is how could I get that money out of Youngblood and get it into these digital products? Hmm. So I think of it in, in those kinds of terms. Yeah. Right. So, so, or I've thought about, can I do some short-term consulting or advising like for $15,000 right. and then use that 15,000 for these digital products? Right. So I kind of think of it like that. So it does a few things for me. One, it makes sure that I don't, don't cut into my vulnerability. Don't make myself more vulnerable than I need to. Two, um, it turns it into a game, which I love about my life. I turn most things into a game. Can I, or a puzzle to solve? And that makes my life fun. And three, it gets me to think creatively, creative, creatively about money. So, I, I just think that we're too robotic about money where it's just debits and credits and um, assets and liabilities. And this is what I love about hanging out with you so much because you do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. You think about creative ways to make more money. And it's just so mind-blowing to me how many ways there are <laughs> yeah. to make money. It's like endless, right? Yeah. And it's kind of, it just makes life more fun and interesting and creative. And if I can do both, right? So if I can um, not make myself more vulnerable and have more fun, well, then I'll do that creative thing. Now, what that means is that I have to delay gratification often. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have to delay the gratification of starting a new business venture often. And I have to delay the gratification of acquiring something that really is a liability often. Right. Because I'm not going to just go grab cash and buy it. I'm going to have to think of a creative way to make more money to go buy it. And that's just for me, that was life changing when I learned about how to do that. When I learned if I want this liability, create an asset or improve an asset to get it, my, my financial life improved dramatically, yeah. exponentially, yeah. right? It just changed my whole financial world. Yeah, that's, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I, I definitely have some of the same thoughts, but it makes me think about, and I touched on this a little bit ago, but when we were in personal debt and a little bit of bit, well, and business debt, not a little, it was half and half, but Caroline and I had $124,000 in total debt in 2013. And we were miserable thinking about it. I mean, it, it literally kept us up at night. It, it made just made me nuts. And I just was so ashamed of it and embarrassed of it. And 
we finally sat down after a couple different conversations and decided, you know what? Number one, didn't get in this debt overnight, not going to get out of it overnight. So that's the first mindset shift that was important. But number two, how can we make this a game? Like, how can we change this to view this not as, oh, we owe this crippling amount of money to, you know what? We have this amount of money we need to pay off. How can we creatively do that? And how can we quickly do it? And sure, we're going to have some delayed gratification like you talked about, which, you know, for us was, especially for me, was having a very modest car that we didn't, you know, we did some extra work for to cover the payments on, um, was also to really sit down and get very rigid with our expenses because that's one thing I think all humans just do poorly, which is we just spend and don't even think about it. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the month, we wonder how we've spent more than we've made. It's because we don't track it and it's very easy to spend money. And all of those little changes for us, it just became this thing where we sat down and we kept going, okay, like where can we find like another $5,000 this month? Or where can we just find $500 this month Mm -hmm. to, to get this down under this next kind of financial milestone? And I will say that that gamification of money, whether it's getting out of debt, whether it's making money, I do think you're right. Like, I think there is a real problem with the robotic nature of how we view making and spending money and mostly making money. I think it's actually more making than spending that if it does become more of a creative outlet or more of a creative journey, number one, it opens you up to seeing all the opportunities that are around you that are at your fingertips where a lot of people don't see them. But then two, it actually can make getting the thing better because now you're actually like you're earning it more than you would if you just went and paid for it. And you're like, okay, well now I have that. And we've all been there. We have all had something we wanted. We've gone and bought it as quickly as we wanted it. And then a couple months later, you're like, "Eh," you know, just eh, meh, that thing's fine. And it's not as exciting as it was when you had the lead up to it, the excitement of it, the actual earning of that thing because you creatively went out and got it. Yeah. And I think that um, I think it works on both sides, man. I think it's the creativity on the both the expense um, and the income side, because I think that's, you know, so many people buy things that they don't really want, don't really need, don't really care about because of that robotic nature of buying. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think you, you and Caroline have been a good examples of that as well, where you've one adopted the minimalism type mindset, you know, where if we don't really need it, should we buy it? And then also spending money on experiences yep. versus things, which I, I think is, uh, you know, that's a, also a financial shift that I made. I don't know when, but, you know, years back where it was like, I don't need to be acquiring more. Mm-hmm. I need to be exploring more, you know, and experiencing more. And, um, you know, when I think about like the time you and I have, the times you and I have shared together, it's all about the experiences we, we create, right? Mm -hmm. Like we create these awesome experiences and those are the memories of course that, that I have. Right. And I, I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you like, you know, anything that we acquired, it was all like these fun experiences that we had. And so I think there's something to be said for when examining debt and income and, you know, uh, assets and liabilities, I, I think it, it's, about looking at it differently than maybe you were raised or how you were traditionally taught and actually making it more interesting, more fun on both sides, what you spend your money on and how you choose to make money. Even if you're like, even if the way you make money, the primary way you make money is very consistent, stable and locked in. 
there's still other things you can do that will make when you buy something more, more, uh, uh, fun and intriguing. If you figured out a way to make money differently, to mm-hmm. get it, to acquire it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that kind of investment into the, into that creativity goes a long way in the quality of life you have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been uh, an interesting combo about this. I, I think that there's, again, like I've said this on multiple episodes, but there's so much I've learned from you about money over the years and conversations that we've had. Um, you know, maybe some I wish I would have had more, like avoiding all of the money that I spent last year in, in project managing uh, incorrectly. But uh, again, I, you know, half of that coin is the side that says, I would have liked to avoid that pain. But the other half is, it says, I'm glad I touched the hot stove because (laughs) I will never make that mistake again. Kind of like getting into $100,000 in debt. When we got to that point, I mean, that was the shift for me that I said, I don't want, not not, uh, not $100,000, not even $10,000. I don't want any debt. Like, I don't ever want to feel that again, even as much as it became a game and it didn't feel super stressful. I just don't want to feel that pain again. And I, I think that that for me has just been the recurring theme over and over is as much as I can learn and as much as I can gather information, whether it's formally or informally, I still think there's something to be said for. And I know you've said this too, and you agree, like every person's individual experience is going to be getting to their own hot stove moment and going, okay, you know, like I, I read all these things, I did all this stuff, and I still had to experience <laughs> this for myself to be able to learn from it. Yeah, that's human nature and that's going to be the case. I do think you can shorten learning curves by learning things, both knowledge, but also practicing the skill. I think practicing the skills of small business is so underrated. It is so underrated. Um, and then I, and I also think that, um, uh, you know, having an advisory group is important. Having a, a, a community or group of people that they, they don't have to tell you what to do. Um, they have to just help you see clearly and help you think clearly. And I, I, I think that's so important because when you're, I think you mentioned something about like being in your own jar. What's that? Yeah. You can't see the label from inside the jar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so you need people around you to help you with that. There's no yep. doubt. And, and truthfully, that is, you know, just a shameless plug. Like that is why we created Wandering Aimfully was that so that we had a community of people who were in their own creative online business journey that could help other people and could help themselves and and could share. And we've just seen it happen so many times now in just the little Slack community, but then also people have gone off and had their own conversations or even started ideas or ventures together. And it is really, you see that happen in real time where someone comes along and they go, hey, I've been doing this for X amount of years. You know, say it's like I own a photography company. Now I want to create a photography course. I'm so overwhelmed, you know, even going through a program like Build Without Burnout, they're like, I just, I have all these questions. And then three or four people show up and they go, oh, hey, I also had a photography business or I didn't have a photography business, but I had this, but I did something similar to you. And that community aspect and what you're talking about, your own advisors, your own trust circle, whatever you want to call it, mastermind is like the fancy word for it these days. Whatever it is that you need or or think you need, uh, definitely tap into that because I just have watched that happen for other people, but I've seen it be valuable for, for me as well. Yeah. And I'll add one caveat to that, which is those should be people whom you are not paying directly. Right. So, so like you've created the community, obviously you and Caroline can help people in wandering aimfully, but the rest of the people that are helping each other are, is ancillary value that they're actually getting out of your, 
um, subscription that becomes uber valuable to them, yeah. right? Is, 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 and that's the same thing with like Starbucks. You know, our rule with Starbucks is no service providers. So like no one offering services, yeah. right? So like if you have a question to be answered, you're not paying for the answer. It's, it's just founders, just people that are in the position that you're in experiencing the things that you're experiencing them. And also, I think it's important to consider where the advice is coming from, mm-hmm. even if it's those individuals, right? Always just consider it. So so there's one la- uh, layer, which is like people that are um, out, of the, out of the gig, right? They're not doing it anymore, but they've got a lot of wisdom. Right. So those are good people to learn from, but also they're not doing it anymore. Mm -hmm. So be careful. Right. So then you have people that are, uh, doing it still, but way advanced from where you're at. Right. On, on, on a scale that is just way beyond where you're at. So they're still doing it. So there's good things to learn from, but also they're nowhere near where you're at right now. So be, be, you know, uh, caution, uh, the advice they're giving you. And then there's people that are at the same place that you're at. And then there's people that you're actually, you know, further along than they're at. So you kind of got to know where that advice is coming from on that scale and take it all in. Um, and then it's just, you know, comes down to the trade-offs we were talking about earlier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you have any uh, move the needle items? I only have one to share with you um, that I can think of for this week, and uh, I'll I'll just jump in with it. Which is last episode, I prefaced that I had been wearing a sleep mask, but I had not been wearing it for long enough that I I felt I could talk about it. But now I feel like I have been. So I've been wearing a sleep mask. Um, as we talked about, you've been doing this as well, and you've had some really good results. Uh, it's been two weeks now that I've been wearing it, and. I will say I didn't have the issue that you did where I woke up in the middle of the night and I like found it somewhere else in the bed. It always stayed on, which was oh, nice. good. Um, I don't know if it's just like the tightness of which I wore it. Like, you know, um, it was super weird the first couple of nights, like having something on my head and face. Um, yeah. That was an adjustment to get used to. The thing for me that I think it has done, which you mentioned uh, as well, which is it does help me fall asleep faster and then fall back asleep faster. So I wake up throughout the night many times like you do. And, you know, sometimes it can be like 30 minutes before I can fall back asleep mm-hmm. um, with the sleep mask, because it's basically like it's complete darkness. Um, it does. I have noticed it helps me fall back asleep faster. I don't think overall I feel like I'm getting better sleep now that it's been two weeks. I've, I've really been trying to like just feel it out every day and, and see if there's been a difference. Um I don't necessarily feel like that. And I do feel like I'm still waking up like as many times throughout the night as I was before. However, just the fact that I fall asleep faster, it's like enough for me to keep doing it. And, and so that's a win for me. Um, so I'm curious if I have to go next level, um, you know, as you've, you've added a couple things to see if I can stay asleep for longer throughout the night, um, and see, you know, if I toss and turn less. Yeah. So, so, I'm in the same exact boat that you're in, which is the sleep mask. What it does for me is it helps me fall asleep faster. Um, and that's, that is a critical component because I would always get frustrated, mm-hmm. right? Especially if I would wake up and then I couldn't go back to sleep immediately, then I would just get frustrated. So th- it's done the exact same thing for me, which is it's, it's just relieved the tension that I used to have 
on going back to sleep. And that is enough for me to continue wearing it too. So I've continued now for, I don't even know how long, several weeks now, um, which is, which has been great. Um, but I'm in the same boat in that I don't feel any different when I wake up. Mm. I still feel like I'm not getting great sleep. Like the quality of sleep isn't, isn't high quality. So I'm going to sleep quickly. Um, I'm going, I'm, I'm still waking up probably the same amount of times, but I'm falling back asleep immediately. That's been the biggest difference, but I don't, I still want to figure out, I just know people who wake up feeling refreshed and I have (laughs) never felt that feeling. And I want to know, I want to keep doing things until I figure out what does that. Now, I did make one modification that is actually making things more difficult, but, (laughs) but, but I think, but I think that's like, you know, kind of how this works, right? Like at the beginning, you kind of got to change your habits and, and kind of get into new habits. So, so, um, as you know, because I've texted you, I, I cannot, I am still a crack addict. Oh yeah. 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 Not get away from the, 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 I, I got, I saw the chiropractic video where <laughs> the one chiropractor was bashing the other yeah. chiropractor who did a video about the other chiropractor. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so there's chiropractor wars on YouTube going on right now. So great. Amongst, yeah. So these chiropractors are like, you know, they get like 300,000 subscriptions and like to their channels, you know, yeah. and, and they're kind of treading lightly some of them are treading lightly trying not to bash other chiropractors right they're trying to say they don't do it right but i don't want to come out outright and say they don't do it right but this one chiropractor in houston is just like straight up he's just dropping fire he doesn't care he doesn't care at all like he's just like no you're doing it wrong or whatever right you know the way i do it is the right way to do it type thing which I kind of believe him. Yeah. I, I kind of am in his corner a little bit. I'm trying to tread lightly myself, but I kind of believe him. Anyway, this chiropractor says that the only way you should sleep is on your back. Whoa. With your feet, with your feet up at a 90 degree angle, kind of like if you were to lay down and put your feet up on a couch, Whoa. you know, at that, at that kind of angle with no pillow. No way. So this is the way he says this is the only way a human should sleep. What? Now, I have no idea if he's right about this or not, so I'm going to test it. So for the last week, I've been sleeping, trying to. (laughs) I am a side sleeper, first of all. Me too. And I usually sleep with a pillow between my knees because I'm (laughs) bow-legged and then a pillow (laughs) under my head. So that's how I normally sleep is on my side. Um, like that. And he's, you know, adamant about that. You should not sleep that way. So I am testing out this theory. It is very difficult for me to sleep on my back. Yeah. First of all, it makes me very uncomfortable. I want to turn over to my sides. It's also difficult to, I've been trying to figure out like how to get my feet up. Right. I was just going to ask you, like, did you put a coffee table in bed? What do you got going on? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I started with just like, I grabbed a bunch of pillows because I've got, you know, a spare bedroom with yeah. pillows in it and stuff. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to try a bunch of pillows, see what, that didn't really work because then there's like 900 pillows all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I've got pillows on the floor, pillows yeah. stacked, pillows over here, pillows. So then I I grabbed, um, you know, I have one of those, uh, I don't even know what they're called, but like, 
they help you sit up. Is it like a little shape, like a, it's like a yeah. triangle or whatever, but it's like yeah. thick foam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I know what you're talking exactly. about. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how you knew that. Yeah, as soon as you start talking about it, I could picture it in my, is it blue? I also think it's blue. Do you, have you seen, <laughs> how do you know that? That's insane. <laughs> have I posted a photo of this No, before? it's, you've deleted your Instagram. How would I know? It's blue, isn't it? Yeah, it is blue. Yeah. Oh, I feel like this is my, my like uh, James Blaine moment. Like <laughs> I'm gonna, about to appear next to you in your house and be like, Told you. And then I'll just like leave and come yeah. back. Okay. By the way, also, I think it's David Blaine, but, um, David Blaine. Yeah. Sorry. You're David James Blaine, Blaine though. Cause My you're bad. like his twin brother. I, I am. Who yeah. doesn't, yeah. who doesn't quite know how to do magic. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But he can, however, guess like the pillows that you have in your bed. That's his one magical superpower. <laughs> right. Right. So yes, it's exactly that. It's one of those foam things that, you know, helps you sit up. It's blue. So I put it laying down underneath my feet. Yes. So it's not quite at a 90 degree angle. It's not quite high enough, but I thought, you know, good enough test. Right. So, so this is my new thing. I'm going to see if I can retrain my body to sleep this way or not. Oh man. Um, and see if it helps improve the quality of my sleep. I, this is my new thing. I am so curious because there are nights when I will try and force myself to fall asleep on my back just because I, I just am like, can I do this? And I can't, I can no. never fall asleep never. on my back. I have to turn over and I have the problem of, so I have extremely broad shoulders because I'm six foot five and I was blessed with g- nice genetics. I need like two and a half pillows underneath my head because of the <laughs> width between my yeah. neck and the mattress when right. I sleep on my side. Right. So this is like a problem for me. If in the middle of the night, one of the pillows slides away, I'll wake up with like the worst crick in my neck ever because there's so much space for my neck to move and flex. So this would actually be super interesting for me. I, I am so curious to hear if you can get this to work because if you can, I will try it myself, but if you can't, I'm going to avoid the pain of this, uh, let me tell you, it's absolutely miserable, but you know, this is like one of those things to me where I try to turn it into somewhat of a game, right? Like I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to solve this problem I have and I want it to be somewhat fun, but it is uncomfortable, man. Like I am not a back sleeper. So, so, but I do know, you know, you have to retrain your body. You have to, to adopt new habits. You know, if you really want something to work. So I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot for 30 straight days. Wow. And I'm going to see no matter what, I'm going to at least start that way. Right. Like I'm going to start out that way when I go to bed for 30 straight days. And, uh, oof, I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's amazing. I have, uh, I've, I've actually been following my buddy, Brian Harris on Twitter, uh, has been talking about the aura ring. O U R A is how you spell it. And it's, it's basically for performance, but focuses a lot on sleep and it follows your patterns, um, at night of when you should go to sleep, like what times you go to right. sleep and you have less fitful sleep. Um, so I'm kind of interested to possibly try something like that because I had a sleep tracker before, but it it was just kind of one of the cheap ones on Amazon. And I just didn't think the sleep tracking technology had really gotten far enough. This was a couple of years ago. And I think maybe it's gotten far enough now where it's actually helping people because it seems to be helping my buddy Brian. So I might think about trying that if your back sleeping experiment for the next 30 days doesn't work out. Otherwise, I have to try that, obviously. Well, and my thing about stuff like that, so I had, I think it was the Pillow app. 
mm-hmm. um, which did something similar to that. You know, it tracked your sleep, how much REM sleep you were getting. It, it told you kind of the hours you should go to bed if this yeah, is the yeah, time yeah. you're looking to wake up, you know, those kinds of things. Um, or you're in your pattern or whatever. Um, but I don't like technology. So I don't like technology in my bedroom <laughs> and I don't like technology on me when I'm trying mm. to sleep. Like, like there's, I don't know if it's just paranoia, but it actually made things worse because <laughs> I was like, I have this app that I have to have open on my phone next to mm. my bed. Then I have to wear my Apple watch it. So it's tracking my heartbeat and all that. And, yeah. and I'm just like, no, 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 no. Like I want to sleep. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not like for me, I don't like these hacks where everything requires more attention and more doing. I want them to be less, right? Yeah. Like relieve stress, not add more stress. And that just added more stress. So, Unfortunately, so I'm going fundamental, like yeah. just change the shape of the bed. Shape, yeah, shape <laughs> of my body on the bed uh, before I get into these crazy life hacks, you know? Yeah. Uh, again, it's just like, it's just one different way to think about like, well, I just rather wear a ring. Like I don't, I just, I'll wear a <laughs> ring as opposed to like reshaping my entire bed, but I get it, you know, like you, you gotta try something. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think this is a super fun convo. I always like having these conversations about money with you and, and, you know, just the way that you think about it, the, you know, things you've learned and even the stuff that we run into that I'm just super happy to share with people. Um, you know, what, what, I, what mistakes have been made and, um, you know, what's going on. So I will commit to, if I ever start to think about taking on a project management role again, uh, for anything, <laughs> I'm going to come to you first and go, all right, Number one, are you going to teach me something or are you going to point me in the direction of something to learn? Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that's super relatable for a lot of people and and hope this episode was was helpful. And then, you know, maybe in the next couple episodes we'll have an update on Youngblood because I'm just, yeah. I'm itching to figure out what you guys are going to do um, with that opportunity. So it seems super interesting. Yeah, likewise. This was a, a fantastic episode, I thought. So hopefully listeners got a lot out of it um, and I'm looking forward to the next one.